Hey everyone, Jay here. Um, So this is not technically an episode about the Israel-Palestine conflict, but it certainly relates very closely to it, and plenty of the discussion ends up being in direct conversation with it. So as a thinker, you'll know that I love to zoom out from the details of the news cycle and attempt to find some wise philosophical lenses in which to understand the world and hopefully also learn to anticipate and navigate it. The topic of this episode is an attempt to do that. So uh, my conversation partner is David Livingston Smith. He's an author and philosopher with a background in psychology. And now he's written three books on one particular topic, dehumanization. The most recent book is called Making Monsters. If you listened to my previous essay on my upbringing and American Judaism's delicate relationship with its history, Uh, You'll know why my ears perked up when I heard Dr. Smith make this point. Monsters are fictional. No one is a monster. Hitler was not a monster. I'm Jewish, I can say that. Hitler was not a monster. Goebbels was not a monster. These are human beings. And it would really benefit us if we considered them as holding up a mirror Hmm. to what is possible for any human being. You know, we are all vulnerable. There's no vaccination against dehumanizing attitudes. That piece of audio is from an interview that Smith did on the David Pakman show a while back. Um, Smith has done several interviews, of course, on his general thesis and in particular this book, Making Monsters. Those are all available online and I've listened to several of them before this conversation. If you want a bit more of a standard walkthrough of his book and his thesis, I would recommend one from the Fireside pod hosted by Blair Hodges. It was pretty good. It's called Monsters. It was from October of last year. Um, But I wanted to try to take Smith's ideas to some different places and ask him about some specific things which are zipping through the information landscape at the moment. Uh, You may have noticed that this word dehumanization is being bandied about quite a bit lately. Uh, Here's a quick piece of audio from the Israeli ambassador delivered at the United Nations last week in defense of their actions. The man on the ground is an agricultural worker from Thailand. He's not Israeli. He's not Jewish. He was merely alive trying to make a living for his family. But he was decapitated with a blunt gardening tool. Horrifying. Israel is not at war with human beings. We are at war with monsters. There's obviously much more to that speech, but I wanted to ask, is this an instance of dehumanization? And we'll be discussing that amongst other things in the upcoming conversation. All right, so there's two things that you're going to need to know about Smith's run at dehumanization. He strives to be a very precise philosopher with his language. Um, I love this. This is exactly the kind of thinking and analysis which I hope to achieve. He makes a real effort to pin down exactly what phenomena certain language is attempting to capture, and he's rightfully very protective of it. And he also avoids an all-too-common academic habit of declaring that all problems in the world are a direct cause of the precise thing which you happen to be studying and writing books about. So. Smith has honed in on a definition of dehumanization over the course of writing these three books, and this is where he currently stands. Dehumanization is the attitude of conceiving of other members of our species as subhuman creatures. The two important words in that sentence are attitude and conceiving. 
Smith ties dehumanization to something that happens in our heads. It's a psychological state, not an action per se. And in fact, an action never needs to accompany the attitude for the phenomena to exist. You'll hear him tiptoe through that language in our conversation as well. And then the other really interesting thing to consider with his idea is to recognize the kind of unstable and tenuous cognitive dissonance which must exist for this phenomenon to be realized. I'll explain that in a second, but let me first give a quick content warning here because this discussion necessarily drifts into some rather disturbing and ugly episodes of human behavior. Um, if you pick up Smith's books, prepare yourself to get detailed descriptions of things like lynchings and genocidal machete rampages. So the philosopher Kate Mann actually proposed this challenge to the very idea of the existence of dehumanization. She suggested that man is the moral animal, incapable of moral thinking, and therefore it's also a creature which is capable of being humiliated in front of its peers. The kind of terribly humiliating and degrading things which were done to the victims at public lynchings, for example, seem to suggest that the perpetrators were still regarding the victim as a human, rather than, say, a non-human animal, which is incapable of even noticing or caring if it's being humiliated in such a way. For example, it would be rather strange to imagine someone torturing a cow in front of a crowd of other cows for the purpose of causing it some kind of existential suffering and shameful embarrassment to go along with the physical pain. Simply killing the human, rather than some kind of public humiliation display, would technically be dehumanization. And that's not really what we see happening when humans are raped and shamed before their deaths. So dehumanization, technically, doesn't really exist. This was man's argument. Smith buys this, but he asserts that dehumanization is actually retaining two thoughts in our minds at the same time, and that the dehumanization attitude necessitates a sort of sustaining of a contradiction. It's logically impossible, but psychologically possible. There's a sliver of hope here in this discovery, because as you'll hear throughout our conversation, this makes the state of dehumanization a bit tenuous and always standing on shaky legs. It's fighting against the grain of some very deeply embedded pro-social features of the human animal. And now, another note before I play our conversation, and this, I think, overlays the Israel-Hamas conflict rather depressingly. Smith and I end up talking about an adjacent phenomena to the strictly defined dehumanization attitude. And that is the phenomena of distance from killing. This is the mostly modern phenomenon of being able to kill an attack at a distance where you're not going to encounter the natural inhibitions of seeing the human face of the target, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the cries, etc. I would guess that this wrinkle in violent human relationship saw its first flickers of invention with catapults which were first developed in Greece in the 4th century BC. These early types of catapults could strike at distances of a thousand feet or so, which might be just enough distance to avoid the challenge of dehumanization, at least for the soldiers only tasked with the operation of those catapults. But it still may have been too close. It took all the way until the 14th or 15th century to develop cannons and muskets, which could be deadly at over 5,000 feet, which seems to be sufficient distance for this to truly be an issue. I mean, 
Imagine pressing a button and a barely visible dot standing a mile away ends up dying. That is a very different situation than being asked to charge into a home and engage in hand-to-hand -hand aggression against a living, breathing, crying creature which looks like you. So the politicians and clergymen and leaders tasked with preparing their soldiers for these efforts had very different psychological tasks on their hands. So to be precise with our words here, I would venture that the horrific things that Hamas fighters did on October 7th was absolutely an instance where the attitude of dehumanization was present. And of course, the attitude exists beyond the fighters themselves. Remember that we are talking about psychological states here, not descriptions of actions. We didn't speak much about all the specific propaganda which plays into that particular aspect of the situation in our conversation. But of course, the role of religious texts to serve as dehumanizing propaganda is a genuine concern and has been a disturbingly successful and aggressive resource throughout history with many different religious texts in many different contexts with varying degrees of feasibility. And yes, of course, there is certainly dehumanization happening from the Israeli side towards Hamas or even Palestinians at large. But what I'm trying to stress here is that the phenomenon of distance killing is a different one. And as you'll hear, Smith and I discussed that this distance not need only be physical. There's a psychological phenomenon of mental distancing from oneself, which enables certain behavior. This is very much the kind of thing I wrote about in the Malevolent Machinery essay, and is becoming a frighteningly ubiquitous feature of modern consumerism societies. But notice that our emotional reaction to these two distinct phenomena is very different and I think this is just an enormous concern for our future. A person who is deep into their dehumanization attitude is a very frightening thing. I mean, words like monster do seem to fit the bill for such people. Smith's Making Monsters title is a play on words where the effort to elicit dehumanization, of course, aims to convince your side that the other guys are all monsters, and in doing so, you are, well, making your own side into a sort of monster. But the depravity of such a person is just off the charts, as far as horror goes, especially when the frenzy of violent action begins. But again, the instability of the attitude luckily seems to make these instances relatively rare. They tend to be incredibly aggressive and quick. But our emotional reaction to witnessing distance killing is something less amped up. Witnessing a person pressing buttons or following certain mentally distancing protocols and racking up huge numbers of kills can be a bit disturbing and maybe creepy, but it doesn't tend to stir up the absolute horror and fright that being in the presence of a dehumanizer does. I'll have a bit more to say at the conclusion of this episode about our back and forth on that particular topic. But now uh, I've said enough. And so let's listen to my conversation with David Livingston Smith all about dehumanization. I would say enjoy, but I don't think that word would be appropriate. So instead I'll say, pay close attention. This stuff is very, very important. But I wanna start with um, sort of backing up not to what you normally do with what is dehumanization in the definition, but something a little, a little different um, about 
you, you have this stance or maybe this annoyance or however you would put it that like philosophy really should be doing something. You know, philosophy should be changing minds and changing the world and trying to solve problems. And just as a, as a precursor, before I relaunched this show, my, 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 uh, my last real episode with a guest was about object-oriented ontology, one of the most like esoteric uh, ideas you could possibly have. So you could, you could take shots at it of like, are people, you know, make, make your best case that philosophy isn't just navel-gazing ivory tower stuff, or maybe your criticism of that it's become too much of that and really what it should be doing in the world. This is, I think, basically a, a, an ethical commitment hmm. uh, of mine that we have these intellectual resources. Philosophers are trained to think about things. And it just seems obvious to me that it's worthwhile thinking about things in such a way as to make life on Earth better. And that's not to rule out other things. In fact, it's it's probably impossible to to know beforehand mm. what is going to contribute in in practical ways to life on earth and what isn't and sometimes there's some some surprising uh connections but i think that not only has philosophy uh gone too far mm. in its aloofness <laughs> and and has in fact turned that into a virtue but also does not incentivize mm -hmm. us turning our minds to really urgent matters of, of practical concern. So my, my view is really uh, a view about redressing the balance, uh, not about making philosophy, you know, all one thing. Yeah. And, and on that subject, you know, I'm not going to beat around the bush. I, I reached out to you because um, the Israel-Palestine issue is back of course in the news and the word of dehumanization is i'm sure you've seen it it's like every other word at the un yeah. and in speeches is about this thing and that's when i i discovered your work and I, and I dove into making monsters i know this is the third of a of a trio of books that you've, you've written on the subject um and so on that topic of the incentivization of philosophers to to talk about these things maybe i'll get you into some trouble by throwing some of the stuff at you that's really kind of live and very emotional right we're not and so we'll see what kind of trouble we can get into but before we do that because <laughs> it might happen um can you also just one more sort of framework question because it's so close to my heart is you seem to um incorporate psychology with philosophy and mix the two and intertwine the two which is, is like speaking my language it's always my criticism of a lot of moral philosophy particularly at the moment which discounts psychology you know we, we talk yeah. about trolley problems and all kinds of these toy scenarios mm -hmm. where it's you know the psychology is just absent from the picture and i frankly think it leads to a bad a lot of bad analysis people who follow my show will be tired of me making that point but i think it's true can mm -hmm. you can you give me again your pitch especially on dehumanization why philosophy is not good enough on its own that we need psychology in the mix and sort of where they they meet see i don't i don't think of philosophy as a discipline. Mm. Uh, I see disciplines as defined by their subject matter. Mm. So psychology is a discipline and biology is a discipline and physics is a discipline. They have their distinctive subject matters. Philosophy uh, participates in all of the disciplines. It, in, in that respect, it's a little bit like mathematics. Mm. Uh, it, it, it plays a very, very, very broad role. And if our interest is in 
truth rather than simply the exploration of logical space, then we need to be anchored in some kind of oh, uh, empirical activity broadly construed. I mean, consulting facts. Hmm. And philosophy on its own can't do that. In fact, I don't think that philosophy is actually in the truth business all on its own. Philosophers, you know, <laughs> students, my students sometimes say, well, in philosophy, there are no answers. And I mm. said, no, there are too many answers. <laughs> right, right. That's the problem, that philosophy is very, very good at seeing options for coming at a problem, but on its own is utterly and unable to decide between those, those options. And there is where we need empirical disciplines. Yeah. And that includes, you know, that, that includes psychology, but it also includes disciplines like, say, historiography. We need to be anchored in the world in some way, or else we're floating off into remote reaches of logical space that uh, are fun to play with, but in my view, not serious. Okay. So in the introduction of this episode, I, I laid out your definition of, of uh, dehumanization, which you've come to after s some time. And you, I think if I got this right, you've sort of narrowed it and whittled it down intentionally. You want, you want to pin this thing down. Um, mm. And so this, it, and I know you've talked about this elsewhere and you wrote about it extensively, but I want to start with this notion of it being an attitude, which can be absent of an action connected to that attitude and sort of where and how you, you came to, I don't know, that, that place the first part of that definition, the attitude part. I, I guess the way to start is that I'm a fan of psychology. Mm -hmm. uh, my PhD was on Freud's philosophy of mind. My first career was as a psychotherapist. So I naturally uh, sort of gravitate to privileging things in people's heads. Uh, so that's part of it, just an overall stance. But also, if we look at paradigmatic, what I consider to be paradigmatic examples of dehumanization, and I developed this really extensively in, at the beginning of my book, Making Monsters, I think there's something very peculiar about limiting dehumanization to uh, certain kinds of actions. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the example of that I, I give uh, in the first instance is of, of lynching, spectacle lynchings. Yeah, it's pretty rough, you, by the way. We, feel yeah, free to talk about all that. I could put a content warning at the beginning of this, but okay, it's, yeah, okay. it's, it's well, detailed. Well, I mean, basically, yeah. uh, most Americans really don't have a clue about right. what lynching involves because they get their impressions of it from movies and television and those are really uh, sanitized representations. So they, most Americans think, well, when uh, African-Americans were lynched, some guys rode up in their Ku Klux Klan outfits and took uh, a guy out into the woods and hung him from an oak tree. But in fact, lynching very, very often involves torture mm -hmm. of the most gruesome kind bodily mutilation, and even the corpse had rounds and rounds of bullets fired into it. Now, 
There were a number of lynchings which were large public events attended by hundreds or thousands of, of people. And by thousands, I mean up to, you know, 15, 20,000 people. Yeah. They were festive events uh, where the victim was, uh, was tortured, uh, had body parts removed often, sometimes was forced to eat parts of their own body. And the culmination was very often being burned alive. Now, I want, it, it makes no sense to me to say that the spectators who were enjoying this gruesome ritual and who were thinking mm -hmm. of the victim as a subhuman beast or monster were not dehumanizing that person. If we're trying to choose between different accounts of what dehumanization is, and there are many of them out there, it seems to me any account of what dehumanization is needs to be able to make the case that spectators to these horrible events were uh, indeed dehumanizing the victim. Yeah. How do you do you have other words that you use to distinguish what dehumanization sort of is not in, in the sense mm -hmm. of like desensitization or, you know, if someone's in that crowd and they're actually a little uncomfortable with it, but kind of just going along with the societal norms, is that just cowardice or which I think is important for you to, to, yeah. to, to draw out? Yeah, right. So so dehumanization for me is entirely constituted by how people mentally represent other people, right? Whether they find these uh, representations horrific or amusing or whatever, that's secondary. Mm. That's why I say to humanize others is to conceive of them as less than human creatures. Yeah. My intellectual style is one that favors making distinctions, mm. particularly about important things. So there's a tendency because dehumanization is such an evocative word to lump a whole lot of different things under the umbrella of dehumanization. And I, I just don't think that's helpful. Mm -hmm. So I, I like to have a rather narrow conception of what dehumanization is and then uh, contrast it with what I call nearby phenomena, mm -hmm. which the uh, analytical apparatus I've developed can contribute to the analysis of. Uh, but these are different things. I see dehumanization as different from racism and different from objectification and misogyny and ableism and all those nastyisms. Do you, I mean, so to get us in a little trouble of this now, given that narrow, um, and, I, and I agree with it, it's, this is, it's my style as well to, to make these distinctions. And I have a question later just about the importance of language generally. Mm -hmm. um, but to, to tie that, to bring that in now, I guess, have you been keeping an eye on the way the word is being used in the conflict that is on, in the news now? I mean, I, I could share a couple of quotes. I don't know if you have some of yours, but the Israeli ambassador at the UN um, got up and, and started his speech with, we are not at war with human beings, we are at war with monsters. Uh, and of course, huh. the, the rhetoric. I missed of, that one. Yeah, that, that started mm -hmm. his speech, which which was followed by um, uh, the uh, a Palestinian uh, representative. Of course, I, I think at that point he was he was playing on just sort of telling the stories of of the horrific you know deaths from the mm -hmm. bombing and whatnot. But of course, the language of Hamas is uh, you know is is 
just as vile. I don't speak yes. Arabic, but there's plenty of, you know, but so just to respond to some of that, do you think that that is too loose with the word dehumanization or like what's going on there to your well, ear? When, yeah. um, when he made that comment, uh, I can't see into his head. I don't know if he was saying that for effect or if it was simply a way to denigrate, which is not the same as dehumanization in my book. But it certainly, it was a comment, I, I think very plausibly intended to elicit mm -hmm. humanizing attitudes mm -hmm. at the very least, mm -hmm. right? Right, so uh, crucial to, to my account of dehumanization is that it is, um, it's not instrumental, it's, it's sincere. We can speak very loosely about dehumanizing language uh, as language either that stems from dehumanizing attitudes or is intended to elicit dehumanizing attitudes. But I, I try to make it clear that uh, this is speaking loosely. Yeah. Can you say more about that? I, I think my audience can handle the rhetoric of philosophy there with instrumentalism as in yeah. like, just give an example of that, of that you cannot, um, at some point in the book and some of your talks, I think, you know, you talk about how you can't talk yourself into actual, you can't convince yourself to dehumanize someone even if you want to. It actually doesn't work that way. That's right. That's yeah. like uh, <laughs> trying to play chess with yourself. You anticipate the move of your opponent. I always win. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. always. <laughs> um, this, this is actually a, a classic problem in the philosophy of self-deception. Mm -hmm. So philosophers who are wedded to the idea that self-deception is 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 an act of intentionally lying to oneself um they're confronted with this problem like how could that possibly work how can you be the liar and the and the victim of the lie at the same time surely you a lie requires concealing one's agenda from the victim of the lie and so th this is my view of dehumanization and indeed of ideology generally i see dehumanization as an ideological kind of process that when people are genuinely dehumanizing others they are they're, they're sincere i mean they they believe it or 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 at least they they give it credibility depending on how fussy one is with the you know the word belief uh and that's that gives it its power, you see, because the idea here is that dehumanization disinhibits aggression. And while it's going to disinhibit aggression only if it's credible to the dehumanizer rather than simply being, you know, uh, a way of talking. Yeah. Uh, I love that. And the back to the comment of uh, that you said, trying to elicit dehumanizing attitudes, I think what's I know there's going to be, it's a dark conversation and your whole topic, mm -hmm. you always get a, you know, you always answer like I'm desensitized to it to a degree now. What's the analogy you always use? I'm like a cancer doctor who's doing yes, cancer yes, all day. Yes, yes, an oncologist, yes, yes. Yeah, but there's something beneath all of it that's actually a bit hopeful because, correct me if I'm wrong, but all of this, the effort of that, of that line from the Israeli ambassador or mm. who, who, yeah, if we could read his mind, let's say he didn't sincerely believe it, but he's trying to elicit these things for other political means, you're... Would you agree that it's fighting against a tide of our natural yes. state, which is not to do this to each other? Yes, right. the dehumanization right. requires work. Right. Uh, and the reason for that is, in my view, 
is that we are ultra-social animals. And, and, you know, that's utterly uncontroversial amongst anthropologists and biologists. There, there's no mammal that comes anywhere near to us in sociality. That has uh, a couple of implications. One implication is that we must, therefore, have inhibitions against doing serious harm to those whom we regard as community members. Because we're ultra-social. This is baked in, in in the nature, yeah. It's baked in, right. yes, it's part of our evolutionary heritage. Right. Um, I'm very cautious about invoking evolution, but I'm sure. okay with this sort of point. So, unlike most other animals, uh, our notion of the community is much broader than the immediate breeding group. Mm. as is evidenced by the history of, say, long-distance trade, which goes back deep into prehistory. Right, so we have to have these, and we do have, and there's a lot of evidence that, that this is the case, inhibitions, particularly against lethal violence, particularly when it's up close and personal. Right. It's That is, for most people, not everyone, but for most people, very psychologically uh, challenging. We we also, as ultra-social animals, are exquisitely attuned to uh, cues of the humanness of others, the sight of a human face, I think, in particular. You know, we all know if we've read the literature that brains process faces differently than anything else. The sight of the human, a human face elicits this response of seeing human, and that elicits the inhibitions against violence. So that's a heritage that we're, we're endowed with biologically. And it's a nice one. I mean, that was already it's nice. It's a nice one, one yes. Yeah. Yeah. So people have to get us. Yeah. Think of others as non-human or subhuman creatures. Uh, it has to work against the grain, as it were. And you know, human beings are being very, very clever, have found all sorts of ways of subverting these um, these inhibitions, disabling them selectively, but uh, it still requires work. And I do think that is a rare, hopeful element yeah. in my work, yes. So how does the dynamic work? I know you talk a lot about this, but that, I want to really stay on that self-deception thing. It's, it's something that I'm really, really interested in, um, developing my own thesis on a lot of that kind of stuff. Mm. So if, you know, like, it has to kind of start somewhere. If I imagine one group of people who, for some reason, there's a political incentive to like, hey, we, we need these other people to, yeah. to move, <laughs> to get out of here. Yeah. And, and at, at first, it, it can't be dehumanization to start, right? It can't be that way. But mm -hmm. is it that someone in the group is just so politically dead set on power or resources or, or whatever it is that they then sort of, they're not deceiving themselves, but they know if I turn my population into a bunch of people who are willing to kill those other people, and like you said, elicit the dehumanization attitude. Well, then they're in my pocket and I could go do this. Does it, I guess I'm asking, like, does it take a kind of psychopath at the top of the food chain to, to move all of the, the foot soldiers well, of dehumanization? It, I, I think what it requires is, so here's another feature of, of being human that's intrinsic to, to human culture. Hmm. That's the, um, 
the division of cognitive labor. Mm. So we have experts, and the expert is someone placed in the role of, a, of cognitive authority, right? They, they may not merit it, but they're placed in that role. The way I like to put it is they're the person who is supposed to know. Yeah. And it is entirely rational to defer to these experts, right? Just as uh, I defer to the microphysicist who tells me the chair I'm sitting on is mostly empty space. Well, that's not what my senses tell me, but he's supposed to know. So, you know, I'm going to go with that. The problem is when the expert, the person in a position of authority, be it a, a political figure or a religious leader or, a, you know, a right wing talk show host or, you know, whatever tells us, well, those others, they, they might look human, they might be outwardly human, but really and truly they're not. Don't, don't trust your eyes. On the inside, there's something else. There's something subhuman, dangerous, monstrous, unclean, mm. and so on. Now, given that, it's reasonable for us poor schmucks to... <laughs> <laughs> to accept that if we endow this person with the with that sort of authority just as it's reasonable for us to accept the view of the microphysicist that's a big part i think of of what happens now sometimes let's call the person in the position of authority just simply a propagandist mm. sometimes they believe it and sometimes they don't right sometimes it's a, a, a sort of a cynical way to manipulate the masses other times and I think it's actually much more powerful if they do believe it, um, because they can sell the idea more effectively. Sometimes they really do believe it. I mean, Joseph Goebbels believed it. Yeah. Was, uh, yeah. Go on. I was going to ask about Goebbels, and, and uh, maybe it's the time to do it with uh, the famous Hannah Arendt banality of evil thesis mm -hmm. and how that bounces against, you know, what you're, what you're pitching now. Yeah. I, I've never been terribly clear what mm -hmm. Aaron meant by the banality of evil. I mean, on a simplistic explanation, which some people have given me, it, it means that people like Eichmann, who commit terrible acts of evil, are not sort of cackling villains, mm -hmm. you know, caricatures of, 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 of evil people, but they're, you know, they're ordinary men, to quote Christopher Browning. But that's, that seems like kind of a juvenile point. I mean, who... <laughs> Who, who would expect uh, uh, Eichmann to be like a cartoon villain? Uh, if it means he was just a bureaucrat doing his job, well, that's false. We, we know that's false. We know from Bettina Stangneth's book, Eichmann After Jerusalem, which is, you know, she had access to all of these tape recordings of, of Eichmann. No, he was he was an absolutely you know, died in the wool, committed anti-Semite. It was a an important project for him. He was not simply pushing pieces of paper around on a desk. But what about all the, is it about the just the, the everyday Nazi pulling the, the lever in the gas chamber? Is it is it more about sort of what we're talking about, maybe not the, the true believers at the top, mm -hmm. but the... Look, some people are know, like that. Yeah, yeah, some people are like that. Um, Look, uh, I I eat commercial chocolate. Commercial chocolate is 
substantially harvested by by slave labor and yeah and also child labor i kind of put it out of my mind yeah i, I talked about this and wrote about it in the last one about uh it's, it's part of my bigger thesis but um you know, I buy products from China, which has an act of genocide going yes. on right now against its weaker. Right. And, and yeah. I, I might be wearing some right now, and I have no idea. Yeah. And and uh, you know, I have a whole this. I won't lay it all out again here, but it's why I'm not a consequentialist, and I have a whole different argument for mm -hmm. this thing that the world is not all. You're not always in a trolley problem, but sometimes you are. Um, <laughs> and, and and when you are, you have not located a a or found a navigation of moral truth or moral permission to do something, you've actually located a political problem which needs to be solved. Mm. Um, it, it's, mm. sort of, it's sort of my thesis there. But, but to, to, to stick with this, because this, I just really love the self-deception thing, I want to take your self-deception argument there and, or the, the impossibility of it to a degree or whatever and the true believers and present to you, and I know you've written about this, is... is in our modern world, and you've written about this notion of distance, the mm. distance between, you know, you're talking about hand-to-hand -hand combat, face-to-face, -face, pretty hard to get a human to like kill another human and, you know, when you're standing next to him. Yeah. Um, but that is becoming less and less the, the activity. I mean, perhaps Hamas has to do that to a degree to get their foot soldiers mm. to run across and do these insanely horrific things that we've all heard yeah. about to a human right in front of their face. But the IDF can have send a drone and press a button and it's a very different action. Um, and, and of course, a very different process of what that takes. Can you, do you think, and this is, this is actually an open question. Do you think this notion of distance is in some ways worse or more, more dangerous than the, than the, the, the maybe difficult process that absolutely happens and sparks very quickly, like Rwanda and wherever else you write about of dehumanization. Do you think distance is actually like a potentially worse or bigger problem? Yes, I do. Okay, yes, I yeah, do. Good. I was I once too. on an airplane. I was traveling to Washington to get film for a National Geographic was doing some TV show on uh, violence. Hmm. And I happened to be sitting next to a, a very well-educated uh, army officer. Hmm. We got talking about this and he uh, he raised the the topic of robotic warriors and asked what I thought about that and I, I said it's extremely dangerous um, because the inhibitions which uh, need to be overcome in order to kill up close and personal are simply not there and he, he was very surprised by this because he he looked at it in an entirely different light so yeah I do I think it is dangerous. But the further the distance, the less the inclination to dehumanize. And the problem with dehumanization is it readily leads to exterminationist violence. Right. right. So so I guess there's a kind of a trade-off here. Hmm. So if you're distant, either physically or mentally, and here we're talking about physical distance, you're not confronted with the uh, the sights and sounds and smells that would elicit the uh, inhibitions coming into effect. Mm -hmm. Dehumanization is specifically a mechanism, in my view, for overcoming those inhibitions. Hence, it's those who are close, who, who get blood on their hands, who get brain splattered on them, like, like Heinrich Himmler did. Yeah. 
who are most uh, receptive, I think, to the dehumanizing mindset. Do you think, I want to go to the mental aspect of what you said there rather than the physical. I mean, they're, they're strangely linked in our modern yes. world, right? Yes. Can you talk yes. a little bit about, maybe this is the power of the image more than the power of language that I want to talk about. Um, Vietnam was seemingly a big shift in your, in this thesis of distance and dehumanization where maybe it was the first, you know, televised war, as they said, where mm. it wasn't just numbers in the newspaper. And it was suddenly a girl running away. We all know the picture. I'm just yeah. starting to describe yeah. it. And it probably all came to all of our minds, even if we didn't live through it, mm -hmm. the girl running, the napalm girl running away with yeah. her hands up with mm -hmm. her clothes burned off or whatever it happened. Um, how does that, does that, is that, is that enough, the, the image of a trigger to, 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 to uh, bring back these inhibitions as you're talking about that maybe authoritarian figures have tried to keep away from us? I don't know. It's an empirical question. Uh, my suspicion is not quite. Yeah. My suspicion is that it has to be in the flesh, in three dimensions. Mm. Uh, but I don't know. And that's something that psychologists could work on and, and figure out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so it's it's the, the propaganda war or the PR war at the moment between Israel and Palestine. And, you know, you go to mm -hmm. different news sites, which might have different political mm -hmm. leanings. And yeah. it's a very different picture that you get up there. Indeed. Um, I mean, it, it, I don't know if you can just riff on that a bit, but it seems just so central to your thesis of, uh, and then, and then, almost like you're saying, people um, who want to to keep those images away from the public because it will it will spark this humanization, and it, you know they don't want they don't want mm. the other side to be humanized to a degree. Mm. I'll, I'll just I'll put this thesis out there for you actually because I'm curious what you think of it. And I, okay. uh, you and I both grew up in Jewish uh, the Jewish tradition, right? I'm, I've heard. Yeah, you talk about my family were non-observing. Jews. Yeah, okay. Mine may have been a little bit more. I don't know if you read my piece, yeah. a tiny bit more, but it was a little bit more Israel stuff. And I've become very concerned, and I totally get the practical concerns here for, for not wanting to do it. Um, but my, if you don't mind me laying out just a quick... No, no, go about, ahead. Yeah, what I think about this humanization thing and how I define it, and then you can respond to it, because it, it's really been on my mind. Um, I think the, the, the human, the man, you know, to be mm -hmm. philosophical here is is the the creative animal the moral animal i, I like all of those descriptions mm -hmm. um it's the animal i'm borrowing this from a former guest rebecca newberger goldstein who said the animal who tries to find our cosmic bearings you know mm -hmm. we ask we ask why why we are what we are we can comprehend these big kinds of questions um and with this capacity we are the animal that is either the rational animal, if you like Plato, or the rationalizing animal, if you like a bunch of psychologists. Mm -hmm. um, but we're the animal that that looks for for reasons, for stories. This is also a little bit of the Yuval Noah Harari myth-making animal, sapiens mm -hmm. thesis to a degree. And so we're the animal that has a story about what we're doing and why we're doing it. It might be total bullshit, right? We've, mm -hmm. We have enough psychology to know. We don't really know. We've talked a little bit about self-deception already and that kind of stuff. But we have a story, and that's our, that's our, our role. Um, and a story is a type of explanation for why you're doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, may, I understand the political reasons for not wanting a, an explanation to be heard because people 
confuse them for moral justifications, right? If Hamas is like, well, Israel has been occupying and so that's our explanation. So we're morally justified to go rape and pillage. Well, of course not. These things, of course, should be separated. And I'm, I'm making a case like we have to separate them. But to deny your opponent publicly or your, your, your enemy or interlocker, it doesn't even need to be violent, mm -hmm. the ability to have their explanation heard or announced, no matter how crazy it is, is actually your thesis is to deny them the ability to announce their humanness. So when you say, and I know you and I have both made this point, when you say someone is a monster, some supernatural creature, it's a creature that's beyond explanation. That's what the supernatural is, yes, meaning sure. non-human. Or if you say it's totally senseless, this is senseless violence, which is what we hear all the time about terrorism, meaning there's no explanation for it. It's senseless and it mm -hmm. denies the, the humanness, which is, I, I think it's why I was so attracted to your thesis and your work with this word dehumanization, <laughs> because that's, you know, I, I think that's what's happening, of course, with that Israeli ambassador saying, hmm. we are not fighting human beings, we're fighting monsters, we are at war with monsters, meaning like, do not try to explain these people. Because if you try hmm. to explain them, even if you totally disagree with what they did, which of course I do, <laughs> I'm sure you do, everyone does, or most people I hope do, um, there is an explanation and they are human. Yeah. Um, that's my thesis. I don't know if you just, <laughs> if, you, if you think I'm sort of onto something with it or just bored no, of me I, talking. I think that, um, that's I would say it's consistent with mm -hmm. how how I see the the problem of of understanding what humanness is supposed to be. Um, so my view of of the category human is that uh, first of all it's a folk category it's not a scientific category so human equals Homo sapiens is immediately ruled out. Right? unless there was this nice convergence, which there isn't actually, if you look at the scientific literature, humanness is the word is thrown around for all to apply to all sorts of, of biological taxa, obviously in our lineage, but still some of which aren't even members of genus Homo. So how does human, the notion of human actually work in practice? How? My, this question I asked myself a while back, because I was unsatisfied with what Ann Phillips calls substantivist notions mm. of the human. That is, you know, you identify some traits, and a being with those traits is human, and a being without them is not human, and there are various degrees of humanness uh, in between. Um, but one reason to deny that, I think, is the, the notorious problem of marginal cases, like babies get ruled out and corpses get ruled out, human corpses, and, and so on and so forth. So I, I think that human works in a somewhat different way. To say that a, a, a person or a group is human is to assert that they are my kind. It's working mm -hmm. like uh, an indexical term. Mm. Like when I say I'm here, well, what does here name? It names that place where the word is uttered. Mm -hmm. And if I say now, now names that time where the word now is uttered. Well, when I say human, I think what's going on is it, its meaning is my kind, that is the kind that the speaker takes themselves to belong to. If you see, uh, explanation 
in the way you've described it as central to being a member of that kind, mm -hmm. then that's going to play a role yeah. in in the um, the humanization process. For often, not always, because again, you're going to consider babies human, and you're going to consider dead people human, and and so on, or people in a coma <laughs> as human. Yeah. Right. So, so I, I would say it's kind of around the territory, but it's not quite how I, I see it. Mm. In terms of practical purposes, of course, I, I think what you said, if we're looking at patterns of propaganda and political discourse, I think that's absolutely right. Just by the way, there's no story that would make the other comprehensible. Mm -hmm. as a being of my kind, yeah. <laughs> like myself. Yeah. In, in your work, do you th have you found like the most common pathway to dehumanization yet? Is it, you know, have you found the magic brew? It seems like that's what you're working on with all these books. And I'm sure you're going to work on another one and keep going until you write, <laughs> like, here's the recipe, right? Because again, back to our first question, if you find a good description of the recipe, then we can just stop making it <laughs> or we can notice when someone's making it in, in, in their kitchen yeah. and be like, well, yeah. so, so my, the, I think the problem is um, twofold or maybe threefold or maybe even more <laughs> come to think of it. There's a problem with regard to our psychological dispositions. So it's trivially true that we, we have psychological dispositions that make us capable of dehumanizing others. I don't think dehumanization itself is a psychological disposition, mm -hmm. but, but there are features of how human minds work that lead us or that facilitate dehumanization. And in particular, what I have in mind are two things. One is hierarchical thinking, uh, the idea that there are higher and lower beings. Obviously, if we say dehumanize or subhuman, it implies hierarchy. These are lesser beings. And the other is uh, psychological essentialism, mm -hmm. about which there is a very robust decades-old research literature. Those two in combination, and by the way, hierarchical thinking is so under-researched in psychology, it's a sin. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's awful. I always make a pitch when I do things like, <laughs> psychologists out there, here's a great research project for you. Though... The fact that we are equipped with these two psychological tendencies makes us vulnerable to certain kinds of social and political forces hmm. that play on those tendencies. Now, because they're robust psychological tendencies, you know, there's no, there's no vaccine for hmm. it. So to protect ourselves, from dehumanization has got to be happening on two fronts. One has to do with vigilance about oneself and understanding one's own propensities and how very, very easy it is if the right forces are brought to bear on us to dehumanize. And the other is the political front of dealing with people who use their positions of power and influence to manipulate us emotionally into dehumanizing others. Uh, and I guess a third, which is also political, has to do with the social conditions, more general social conditions in which we live. 
So for instance, I, I have a particular take on, on propaganda. Effective propaganda works by enhancing people's sense of vulnerability, of helplessness in the first instance, and then offering magical solutions, salvation from that sense of helplessness in the second uh, instance. It works best, I think, when objectively speaking, people are vulnerable. Mm -hmm. you know, if, if they don't have health care, they don't have enough to eat. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're living in dangerous places where they're, they're subjected to, to criminal activity and so on. Mm -hmm. And so the project of creating societies where people are reasonably secure I think is really important for uh, preventing, uh, or, or rather, not it won't prevent it, but it, right. it, Make it makes us a bit more resistant right. to this sort of thing. And conversely, then, social insecurity is a means that towards um, generating yeah. dehumanization. I, I have so many questions. I'm going to try to, to, to split it into two because I really want to ask you about social media. And mm. that notion of distance that we were talking about before, um, yeah. in this strange way, I mean, the voter, I'm totally on board with the, with the thesis of the vulnerability. And of course the economic and political ones are kind of easy for people to understand, right? This yeah. is, that's a very like material condition, but there's kind of this, uh, spiritual loneliness. Mm. People are starting to talk about it more, the loneliness epidemic, that, that data seems rather alarming of people saying they only have one or zero friends that they actually mm. are close. Mm -hmm. How do you, like, do you, this type of vulnerability also seems incredibly ripe to, um, to jump in with, with, with something. Um, uh, yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I've, I've never really considered that, but I think mm. that's right. And of course that, makes it very attractive to be part of a movement. Right, exactly, right. Right, and being part of a movement, dehumanization is not an individual level thing, it's a group level thing. So, so yes, I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you on. Yeah, and because the other thing I want, I mean, the, the distance thing is so interesting to me. Of course, we're leading these physically distanced life. I mean, you and I are talking over, <laughs> over, mm. over Zoom right now, of course, but um, I left social media over a year ago, best thing I've, I've ever done, <laughs> mm. but, it's the the distance that people seem to have. It's there's like a false connection on social media, which does seem to also be. I know that this doesn't fit your, again, protected for good reasons, uh, definition of dehumanization as this rather mm -hmm. aggressive, violent phenomenon, or almost always, or violent attitude, which often mm -hmm. leads to violent phenomena, mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but these kind of like diluted versions of it, of sort of um, you know just being represented by an avatar of yourself online yeah. is all, I mean, I guess this is what used to be called alienation, which is, I know not the yes, same. Yes, as, yeah, yes. I, I don't know if you can relate those concepts. It's an old Marx term, but I like it still. Well, actually, you know, Marx's original term was entmenschum, which mm. translates mm. well as dehumanization. But what, what's meant is something different than I mean. Than I, mean. I, I consider this sort of a next door phenomenon. There, there are a number of related phenomena that, that vary in, in, in important ways. And, and that's really important to take account of because if we want to do something about any of these things, we need to know how to intervene. And it's only by understanding, you know, popping the hood and looking inside at the, at the engine that we can uh, 
come to sound conclusions about how to intervene. I guess because what I'm really getting at there, that word powerlessness, I think is so, so important. I did an episode about conspiracy theories um, and uh, a few mm. seasons ago, and this it was two really good psychologists who were studying it and how they spread and whatnot, and they kept you know, narrowing in on this notion of control. People who, who are looking for control in a, in a chaotic universe, if you're going to be mm. existentially accurate, but even just lack yeah. of control in all kinds of systems. Um, I mean, the Germans pre-World War II felt mm. like they had powerless after the Versailles Treaty and all, Absolutely, kinds of, yeah. all kinds of things went into that mix. But this notion of powerlessness, again, in sort of the, um, I wonder if, if if you worry or you, you think about sort of general neoliberalism, consumerism, capitalism that we live in, which seems more and more just sort of bureaucratic and mechanical. We all have a number. It's a social security mm -hmm. number. Some, we're a number in a database, which also yeah. feels like that's a, a non-human thing, right? I'm, I'm not trying to be mm -hmm. dramatic here, but the Holocaust yeah. victims yeah, yeah. all had no, numbers on. Right. Yeah. There, there's a pathway here in an analogy that, um, and I think a lot of young people have this also sense of powerlessness. You know, they can't really seem to move the Titanic of politics from the direction it's going. And um, this does seem like an incredibly vulnerable and ripe moment yeah. for for humans and yeah yeah, yeah no i i think so again i i wouldn't use the language of dehumanization but i would certainly use the language of objectification um you know we are uh what's the word i want i, I haven't found the word i want but i'll use it i could offer some <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're products right we are right we are to be bought bought and sold we are uh, I was going to say prostitutes, which may have gone too far, but, <laughs> but, but there's something like a virtue prostitute where, yeah. you know, it's, it's a means to an end in capitalism kind of thing. And, and that's for a social animal like ourselves, I think, mm. can't not be really, really disturbing. And certainly young people suffer from this a lot. I, you know, God knows how many of my students are on psychiatric medication. And, and this is another aspect to it. Of course, Big Pharma jumps in and convinces people that the problem's in their head, not in the world that they live in. If they are anxious or if they're depressed, there's something wrong with them and they need to get fixed. But, you know, I tell my students, look, of course you're anxious, of course you're depressed. Why the hell wouldn't you be? I mean, there would be something really wrong if you weren't. Uh, so, yeah, it, in that in that kind of landscape, I think, uh, I think, I think it's reasonable to suppose that this enhances our receptiveness to political messages that promise salvation right. and deliverance and unity and security and all those good things. Yeah, and you always just need to break a few eggs to make that omelet on the other side. And those eggs yeah, that's are, right. are oftentimes yeah. human bodies that are between yeah. you and Yeah, well, that's salvation. where real dehumanization exactly. often comes in. You, know, you have to defeat the, the enemies of humanity. Yeah. Can you talk just briefly in this last, I know we only have a little more time. Um, I've been, it's been a rough month, I think, for a lot of us who've kept an eye on mm -hmm. violence in the world and, and we have worries of it spreading and, um, you know, your work, especially, you know, your ears must be tickling every day hearing your a word that yeah. you focused on so much. Mm. I'm curious what you think of this notion. I've been talking with a friend and we've been having these good conversations and 
kind of narrowing in on this notion of acknowledgement, which seems to go along with humanness, acknowledgement of your pain, acknowledgement of one's pain and one's suffering because we're messy creatures and our pain comes out in all kinds of, of ridiculous Mm. ways. And again, this has nothing to do with justifying Hamas's actions at all or Israel's response. Mm -hmm. I'm sort of staying out of those, those weeds. That's right. These are two different issues. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the notion of acknowledgement, even on a personal level, because I wanted to ask you when you were going through the authoritarian figures of, you know, it could be a a president or a a, a priest or whatever. It could also just be a parent, right? Who can be. Yes, that's that's absolutely right. Very small scales. Yeah. And the notion of just even just one-on-one acknowledgement of your um, humanness, what does, what does that look like? Because it seems, and again, we don't have to get into the details of all the history, I'll save that for another episode, but Israel-Palestine and most of these conflicts are like a lot of unacknowledged pain of like, hey, you hurt me and you're not saying it. And the other side mm-hmm. saying, but you hurt me and you're not saying it. I mean, yeah. anyone in a relationship has probably been here too, just on a person to person scale. But is it seems like it's a really crucial ingredient for dehumanization where there, there's no idea. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I use slightly different language. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than pain, I prefer the word suffering in mm-hmm. this context. Mm-hmm. It's I think it's a richer notion. So it's you know it's it's people very readily attribute pain to to non-human animals or in fiction to monsters but suffering is a different matter and and suffering i think when we recognize suffering there's a process of identification with with the suffering being yeah and therefore there in when people are dehumanized uh we may think they feel pain and we may want to inflict pain on them, but we are, are, are deaf and blind to their, to their suffering. Yeah. They're incapable uh, of it. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Because they don't, I mean, in my view, because they, they don't, if, if you dehumanize them fully, they, they aren't capable of asking these existential questions, which is really the root of where suffering mm. comes from. I mean, at mm-hmm. least the, I mean that's a, always how I've conceived of it. Mm. Um, I mean, yeah, just on to, to bring in the specifics of it, it's like, I don't know if this would help at all, but the Palestinians don't get acknowledgement that the Nakba happened and the Israelis don't get acknowledgement that the Holocaust happened and Palestine mm-hmm. celebrates it and whatever else. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it's, and it's, the cycle just goes on forever yeah. and ever and ever. This leads to really messy divorces. Of course, there, yeah. there's not gonna be a divorce there. They're stuck. I think we have to figure this out. Um, yeah. but, but yes. Yeah, so, so yeah, I, I didn't mean to keep giving you dehumanization because I know you're protective of that word for a really specific <laughs> reason, but I think it's been interesting to talk about the other what you, the adjacent phenomena that yeah, that, yeah. you know I, I i really i think this i say to my students all the time that with respect to to these things in the world which are so sad and mm-hmm. dangerous and so on i think we really should be concentrating on the goal what what are we trying to do with our discourse to my mind very often some people this is impossible to do with but i try with everyone is to approach them with the awareness that whatever views they have and whatever values they have they got them from somewhere there's a story there um and to be open and curious Mm. about that and to have that kind of conversation now you know when i interact with white supremacists online or whatever this is what i try to do Mm -hmm. And, you know, even if they repel me, 
they may go away from that conversation, I'll never know, thinking, well, this kind of Jewish liberal, maybe it wasn't so bad. <laughs> you know, maybe they're not, they're not all subhumans, libtards. And, you know, it's very hard to tell because, of course, people like that, a, a lot of their, the way they talk is a performance right. for their social networks. Um, they have to not lose face with their social networks. So I guess it's an article of faith for me that this is, at least in the first instance, a, a constructive way to to go forward. But it's very tempting to do something different because you get this warm glow of self-righteousness, right? When you when you disparage and you shame and you mock and and all those things which are so prevalent sadly around really really serious uh issues that that we need to deal with and we need to solve constructively if we yeah. can again I, I think even in that there's something really hopeful again because it points to the, the the tenuous sort of balancing act that dehumanization has to maintain in our minds yeah. even as a performance to each other to just be reminding each other being like hey these they're not human right just keep reminding me i'll remind you exactly we'll hype each other mm -hmm. up and then you know, one day they'll all be dead, I suppose, and we won't have to do this anymore is the nightmare. But, um, yeah. it, and then just on, because on that final thing, then it's also with a lot of the, you know, the Rwandan genocide and even Nazis after the war, after Hitler, after the head of the snake gets eliminated or whatever it is, mm -hmm. it's creepy in some ways to see how quickly these ideas seem to dissolve. I don't know if you've read mm -hmm. Machete, Machete Season, which was mm -hmm. just- I've got yeah, on my bookshelf yeah, right here. Yeah. your bookshelf. Yeah. It's, it's just accounts for those who haven't uh, read it, just interviews of yeah. people who participated in the Rwandan genocide. Um, and it's almost just like, uh, I think you you quoted maybe one of them of like a fog is lifted. Yes, in that that, right at the beginning of Making Monsters. Right, yeah. right. And, and that, if we can just end this episode on some hope, because there's a lot of <laughs> ugliness in the, in the, in mm -hmm. the, in the, in the conversation and in the moment right now, like, can you just hit that moment of like after dehumanization? Maybe that's your next book. I don't know what you're working on then, but I think there's something so interesting about simultaneously scary and hopeful of how easy this can just go away, be popped in an instant. Yeah, yeah, it can. Uh, but I want to qualify that a little bit. So I, I've talked about dehumanizing propaganda. Dehumanizing propaganda, I think, tends to work when there is a long-standing dehumanization or at least denigration of a, of a population. And that can be latent, right? The problem is if, if it's a long-standing one, it's often foundational to, to a culture. So in, the, in Rwanda, you know, the, the, the genocide or actually the genocides were not just things that emerged willy-nilly in the in the 20th century right there was that goes back at least to belgian colonialism and the and the 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 representations of tutsis and hutus that were then sedimented in in that society and that's kind of acts like dry kindling you know it's ready for a flame it's ready for someone to light a match and that often happens when the social ecology changes. So if there's say a, an economic crisis or a war or 
whatever. We see the same thing in Nazi Germany, right? The, the Nazis didn't really invent any new anti-Semitic tropes. The mo Every aspect of their picture of Jews goes back to the, the 12th, 13th, 14th century. Uh, even though these things can become latent and they go underground, the problem is they can be revived. And so after an episode of dehumanization, manifestly, this can just disappear, you know? And, you know, think of it, we have a remarkable capacity. See, we talk about us and them, but often it's it escapes attention that the distinction between us and them is a political distinction. It's not a natural distinction. It's lines are drawn. Some of us can be extruded into the them, and some of them can be included into the us. We see this historically all the time in the making of enemies and the making of allies. The problem is, of course, to use your example, say, of, of Rwanda, that if the foundations are still intact, it can all happen again. It can all happen again. And I don't know, I really don't know, apart from taking prophylactic measures to try and make sure that um, that people don't engage in this projects of making these dispositions actual again, I'm not sure how if they can be extirpated or how they can be extirpated or if there's something we can do other than, you know, in the fullness of time, these things get, get weaker. So, yeah, that wasn't exactly yeah. a hopeful <laughs> you note, didn't, you I'm, didn't, I'm afraid. You but I think it's a realistic that. note. I um, think so, too. There aren't any happy ever afters here where it's a because humanization is so bound up in the political structure of the world and the psychology of human beings i think we have to see it as an ongoing project to keep this tendency in check rather than uh, something that we can something we can constrain but perhaps not entirely eliminate let's put it that way yeah Okay. Well, there was something you said way earlier about maybe, is there something about sort of um, being distrustful of authoritarian figures or, yes, or ceded yeah, so much yeah. to experts? I mean, like, how does one person catch themselves maybe in the act? Well, if in I, I, think that, I think there's an educational thing here, right? Yeah. One is educational in, education in human nature. Ed, education in certain aspects of psychology that are politically important, right? It's not like psychology 101, where you learn about learning and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. There are some aspects of human psychology, which it's desperately important for citizens to understand, mm -hmm. so that they don't fall prey as readily to uh, dehumanizing rhetoric and propaganda. They're less ma manipulatable in, in those ways. An another educational thing, which is really, really important, I think, is proper historical education, because, it, it, you know, if you realize, gee, we've done that, <laughs> and everyone, oh, na nations are born in violence, and everyone has blood on their hands somewhere along the line, we've done that, then that itself is an admission that we are capable of it. And that means maybe we would do it in the future. In fact, maybe we're doing it now and we don't recognize that, say, 
mass incarceration is an atrocity. Yeah. Um, so there, there are those things, and then there, there's there's more outward looking supportive uh, institutions that give us a measure of protection, freedom of speech, and free press, and all that. And in addition, as I mentioned earlier, creating societies where people feel secure, so there's not surplus helplessness mm -hmm. to be toyed with by people who want us to harm other people. So there, there are an array of things that, that can help. It's not foolproof, there's no magic bullet, there's no vaccine, but we can do a lot better. So I'm glad I got Smith to get a bit of the internal resistance to dehumanization stuff there at the end. And while I endorse everything he just mentioned, I also want to add my own bit of philosophy and expound on the existential distance point, which I alluded to in the conversation. I want to try to make an inverse argument regarding Smith's necessary psychological contradiction of dehumanization, which I laid out in the open. The point we kept hitting about the unnatural state of dehumanization is important. And by the way, I really loved that Smith mentioned that we don't often like leaning on nature in our moral argumentation, but it does seem to play an important role here. So to flip the question of dehumanization, I think humanization is just as perilous and evasive a psychological state to maintain. Take my proposed definition of man as the animal which seeks explanations for his situation and his actions. I mentioned that one could call this the myth-making and myth-believing animal. Well, when we take this conception and think deeply about philosophy, we encounter another contradiction, and that is the illusory nature of free will. I won't go through the entire determinism argument here, but if a genuine investigation of our actions reveals a world of blunt physics interacting and processing information, then all of our explanations of behavior are merely descriptions of the way mathematics and physics works out. In the inarguable light of determinism, a cow and its apparent choices are just a result of the determined or random way that the physics of its brain and environment happen to dance at whatever moment we look. There is no separate cow soul which conjures its own desires and pulls the lever in its brain to decide which blade of grass to eat next. And even if there were a cow soul, the cow would not be responsible for the soul which it was apparently gifted by the god of cows. There's no room for free will in this picture. Now, the cow doesn't seem to have a problem with this, but we myth-making and myth-believing humans do. We have this capacity to ponder what we are and why we are. This gives birth to what we call science, which is the quest for good explanations, which are statements about what is there, what it does, and how and why. The why in that definition is the existential curse, which manifests itself in the act of genuine artistic expression. I contend that all artistic expression, true artistic expression, springs from this existential capacity and its inherent frustrations. And I contend that this is what proves our humanity as a distinct animal, at least here on Earth. I mean, 
Imagine if you were tasked with slaughtering a single cow in a herd. And you didn't think much about it and just randomly chose one. But then you saw the cow you were about to kill had scratched an image in the dirt. And you look closer and you see that the image is of a cow looking up at a cloud in the shape of a golden barn in the sky. The cow had dragged over with its hoof some flower petals to color in some of the siding and maybe used some stray seeds to illustrate the longing eyes of the cow subject. It had sketched this masterpiece with its hoof. I would bet that you would have a hard time killing that cow. Or perhaps you would kill it right away out of horror that the cow had in fact crossed some important moral threshold of existential ponderance and thus personhood and you just feared the competition. Now, I don't lay out that sort of funny argument to suggest that there is a moral permission to eat cows or animals, I can save that for another episode, but I'm drawing this out to show that our very humanness rests on the contradiction that our explanations and all of our seeking is special and somehow sacred in a purely secular sense, even though the deterministic logic is impenetrable which reduces us to merely being complex physical systems which are no different than the cow or a Venus flytrap. So the attitude of humanization, it turns out, is just as difficult to maintain as that of dehumanization. I put it forward to you to fight for humanization, and in particular to humanize yourself. As Smith suggests, you should always be wary and skeptical of experts suggesting that your opponents are subhuman. You should pay attention to that little natural tug in your heart which reminds you that the thing in front of you is a human. No matter how angry, terrified, jealous, or disgusted you are at it. You should be on guard for those who want to make you into a monster. But I don't want to sound too unrealistic and idealistic here. There are times when killing must happen. Smith calls this the problem of killing. And I want to emphasize that we should also be extremely wary of experts who wish to tell us that certain killings are necessary and to trust them to no end. And we should outright reject language that refers to humans as collateral damage. These rhetorical efforts are the tools of those who wish not to exploit our vulnerability to dehumanize, but instead it is the propaganda of those who wish to exploit our fear and numbness to the problem of killing at a mental and physical distance. We're entering extremely treacherous times as a species when it comes to the rising threat of mental distancing. I contend that the only way to truly live is to fight like hell to retain one thing through all of the challenges, our humanity, properly understood and properly cherished. Because if we lose that while trying to secure the world from dehumanization, we will have won a world not worth winning. Thanks for listening. I also just want to give a thank you to my friend EJ Golub, who helped uh, read the book and have some conversations with me and compiled some great questions for David. So thanks, EJ.